This week on The Truth of It, we talk about the smear campaign against Israel Folau and how to be discerning. We also talk about the implications of his case for you and your freedoms. And then we finish with something a bit different. What is love? I'm going to turn first today to a predictable topic, which is Israel Folau, but particularly in light of the last 24 hours in which he has been targeted, uh, indeed since the beginning of the week, falsely. Because I need to expose something, and it is a calculated and deliberate attempt to slime Israel Folau. If you were up bright and early Monday morning, watching Channel 9's Today. It wasn't 10 minutes into the programming before the reporter announced sacked rugby player Israel Folau has now intensified his attack on homosexuals, targeting transgender youths in a sermon this time. And you think to yourself, well, my goodness, what's happened? Footage of a sermon delivered by Israel Folau in his church the previous day then appears, and this is what he says. He says, they're allowing young kids in primary school to be able to have permission to change their gender if they want by taking away the permission of their parents. Now they're trying to take control as the government to make those decisions for young kids that basically are 16 years old or younger, and they don't even know what they're doing. Now that's the sum total of the clip that they played following that inflammatory statement. Now, I presume most journalists are supposed to know a thing or two about grammar. Uh, but here's a tip from an untrained bystander. What does the they refer to in Israel Folau's quote? Is it the kids? Is it their fault? Are they the problem? No, Channel 9, listen carefully. They are allowing kids in primary school to be able to have permission to change their gender. They are trying to take control as the government to make those decisions for young kids. They, I mean, he actually says in the quote itself, they equals the government. He says so. The answer is there, and yet it's characterized as an attack on homosexuals and transgender youths. Actually, if this is an attack on anyone, and you know, even that is you know, a stretch, but if it's an attack on anyone, it's an attack on the government. And yet headlines across the media Monday morning were predictably full of this lie full of this deceit. Folau launches fresh attack on gay and transgender people, news.com.au. Israel Folau targets gays, transgender children in church sermon, Daily Telegraph, The Australian. Israel Folau doubles down with new homophobic comments, Yahoo. Folau makes fresh slur against homosexuals, Sky News. Israel Folau attacks gays, transgender youth, Seven News, and on and on it goes. Now, how is that fair? It's not only unfair, it's actually the kind of lie that should make us really annoyed and would be exceedingly upsetting for somebody in Israel Folau's position. But you can judge for yourself because I'm going to read you a much larger excerpt from the sermon in question to get a sense of what Israel Folau was actually saying. And he started with the quote that I just mentioned, they're allowing young kids in primary school to be able to have permission to change their gender if they want by taking away the permission of their parents, he says. Now they're trying to take control as the government to make those decisions for young kids that basically are 16 years old or younger, and they don't even know what they're doing. Now bear in mind that in the state of Victoria, in fact, I think most states, Queensland as well, um, it's illegal for someone to get a tattoo under the age of 18, even with the permission of their parents. So what he's saying is dead right. These are minors. He goes on to say, this is what the devil is trying to do to instill in this government, into this world, into society, and it's slowly happening. The sad thing is that a lot of people out there, a lot of non-Christians are saying bad things about the church, and a lot of churches today allow these things. They say that a man and a man should be able to be married, and there is nothing wrong with it. 
This ties into the theme of pleasing man rather than pleasing God and standing up for the truth. The thing that I've learned is that if ever there's a time to stand up for the word of God, now is the time as born again Christians. Or are we going to be too scared because we're going to be cast out of our workplace or we are going to be cast out of somewhere because we're not liked or loved only because they do not believe the same thing we believed? John 12, 43, for they loved the praise of man more than the praise of God. That's a real challenge to us. It's an ongoing journey that each and every one of us are striving to achieve. You know, we're trying to walk unto perfection. The Bible says, be holy for I'm holy. But every day we're challenged in some kind of way on some type of scale. You were challenged whether or not you're willing to please God or please man. It's, it's a challenge. And as time goes on, it's only going to get a lot harder. And the Bible says that those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my name's sake will find it. That's a big challenge. And that's all part of carrying my cross daily and denying myself and following after him. That's going to be challenging for all of us when we must lay down our flesh. And so long as we're in this body of flesh, it's going to be challenging each and every day. And there's a much longer excerpt from the sermon which ties into the text that he picked up for the day. And going over what the media has said, this idea that it's a homophobic slur that is targeting transgender youth, it's not an accurate characterization of what he's trying to say at all. But notice something about this. Notice first the coordinated nature of what happened. It's across all outlets, News Corp, Fairfax, the TV networks and all the rest. It's multi-platform, print, audio, video. It's synchronized. Everyone said it at the same time on the same day. And it's carefully messaged. They said exactly the same thing. Every headline was similar. Now, Israel Folau sermon was of a particular nature, but every headline said that it was of another particular nature. And this is the nature of modern media. Stories are briefed out and they are planted often by interest groups who want to get their message across. And if you know enough journalists across enough platforms, you can get a lot of synchronization going on with your message. Now, which interest group do you suppose would want to destroy Israel Folau's good name? Answer, Rugby Australia. This is a PR battle as much as it is a legal battle for them. Their reputation is in tatters, their supporters are cheesed off, their sponsors are getting upset, and Raylene Castle's job is far from secure. But by contrast, here's the issue. People love Israel Folau. And so there's a solution. And it's ruthless. And it is destroy his reputation. And they will stop at nothing to achieve it. That is why confidential sworn testimony and witness statements from the tribunal proceedings were leaked to the media. That is why media were told to write a story saying that he was getting sick of rugby anyway and was going to turn his back on it, which was a lie. That is why the idea was allowed to persist and it was repeated by politicians and media personalities and all sorts of public figures. The idea was allowed to persist that Israel had promised not to post any more on social media or that his contract somehow had a specific clause inserted within it. Some, some said by agreement that said he wouldn't do what he did. Also untrue. That is why the media was falsely told that he was under the thumb of his father, who told him he'd certainly go to hell if he deleted the Instagram post. Also, clear rubbish. That is why stories are out even today, saying that the owners of his church's building are trying to kick them out. Also, it seems untrue. Now, why do I say all of this? Because we are at the risk of this smear having its desired effect on us over time at risk of growing weary or even ashamed of supporting Izzy. And in some of the immediate commentary, even amongst some outlets that would normally be supportive following all of this, you could see that they were wavering. 
you could see that they were backing down. I heard on one usually very supportive platform, somebody saying, oh, well, you think he would have you know, done enough damage by now and he'd give up and this sort of thing. See, if we don't exercise some discernment by treating every word the media is saying with skepticism, then we could easily become complicit in a program of lies, which is very dark and very calculated. And we must continue to expose what is going on, not be swallowed up by it. We must continue to stand with Israel because he needs our support now more than ever. And it may well be that we overtly imbibe these things, or it may well just be that we become ashamed of standing with him so clearly because of the things that are being said, because other people are believing them. No, no, we need to be clear and expose these things so long as they continue to be untrue. And to make it clear, if anyone is getting attacked in this process, it's Israel. Israel's lost more than anyone, suffered more than anyone in this whole story. He's been expelled for life from the sport that he loves. He's been rejected from the alternative football code, which he can also play. He's been lied about and smeared nonstop. He's uh, lost his only source of income with no prospect of an alternative. He's facing millions of dollars in legal and PR costs. And so I could go on. And what did he do to others to deserve this? Well, he spoke. He said something. He said something straight out of the Bible. He committed a thought crime by expressing mainstream Christian beliefs. And you know what? The reality is millions of Australians agree with him. And even more Australians would agree with him on that comment about the government doing what they're doing on the transgender issue uh, throughout the broader Australian community. Now, I've written at length about all the things that Israel has not done, which others have done and gotten away with. He's a man with a strong record in his personal and private and professional life. But no, he committed a thought crime, and a thought crime these days is enough to get you in trouble. Now I'm going to turn on to a second part of the Israel uh, Folau issue, which is the connection to the broader issue of religious freedom. And I want to speak for a moment concerning that because I want to establish something. And that is, make no mistake, Israel's case is our case as Christians. Many have tried to isolate it as unhelpful or, or merely an issue of contract law. I've seen that one out there as well. Or, or something that's removed from the mainstream religious freedom discussion by virtue of its peculiar circumstances and specific sort of uh, ins and outs. Uh, and none of that is true. That's not accurate. Israel's case actually has two huge implications for you and for me. Uh, and the first relates to our employment. Uh, Izzy has been found guilty of a high-level breach of the Rugby Australia Players' Code of Conduct. And the clause that they claim he has breached is, namely, bringing the game into disrepute. Now, here's the problem. Nearly all of us are subject to codes of conduct like this one. Whether we're an employee, your company's going to have one. If you're a professional, the body that's responsible for your professional accreditation and maintaining it is going to have one that applies to you. Uh, or if you're affiliated with an institution like a university or any number of others, well, they're going to have one. If you're a member of any kind of society or whatever, they're likely to have one. And so I could go on. And I've seen heaps of these codes uh, in my previous role, particularly as director of the Human Rights Law Alliance, where we had all sorts of cases come along, like Israel Folau's case. I always say he's the one that, got, he's the one that was famous. There was many more before him. There continue to be many others in the Australian community. I've read 
read many of these codes and a lot of them are tougher, a lot of them are more dangerous than the Rugby Australia Players Code, which is actually much more high level. Um, there's clauses, for example, I remember one that I read, uh, which was prohibiting conduct that could be perceived to be discriminatory. Now that's a lower bar. Or uh, words, prohibiting words that could offend or insult, and especially offend or insult people on the basis of their different kind of religious or sexual or whatever uh, identities. Uh, or language in there like, uh, you know, not to make people feel unsafe. And uh, very often they will allege that words, that ideas, that speech has made someone in the organisation feel unsafe. And that has been uh, something that's precipitated people even being fired. Um, now, if Israel's religion, I mean, specifically, let's be clear, if the Bible... Uh, is a breach of this code, the Rugby Australia Players Code of Conduct, and that makes him unfit to play sport for life, then the chances are that many of us, many of you watching this, are in trouble because you too are subject to these kinds of codes. And that's not merely if you're a Christian, but also even if you're somebody who wants to have beliefs and express those beliefs and live your life in accordance with those beliefs when they don't pass through the politically correct filter. Now, that's the first clear implication. The second clear implication is for, of Israel's case for you and for me is this. The case will answer a legal question or help to answer a legal question. And the question is, is what amounts to unlawful discrimination on the basis of religion? Now, most states and territories in Australia make it illegal to discriminate against somebody because of their religion. And most people think, well, that's the end of the matter, right? That's it. You know, that's, that's clearly going to answer the issue. And, and actually, it isn't. Because there's a big question mark over legally, don't use your common sense for a second, just get in the legal world. Uh, there's a big question mark over what exactly is religion. The thoughts inside your head, well, they might be one thing. The statements in creeds from history, like the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, that might be another thing. Uh, the things that go on in the four walls of your church on a Sunday morning, the preaching and the singing and all that kind of stuff and the praying, that might be another thing. But is public conduct, like speaking on social media, attending work, making day-to-day -day choices, is that religion, legally? Is taking action against somebody because they've done one of those things, is that taking action against them on the basis of their religion? Well, Israel needs to establish, or his lawyers need to establish, a clear connection in a legal sense between religion, his religion, and his Instagram post. And that is not as easy as you might think. But if that connection cannot be made, or if the judges say through a whole range of legal meanderings that it cannot be made, then none of us will have any reliable legal protection for expressing our religion in public. We'll be fair game under discrimination rules in this country. Now, don't just take my word for it. You know, I was uh, in Sydney when the press conference was given by Raylene Castle because the Rugby Australia uh, board uh, had, the Rugby Australia panel uh, had decided on Israel's penalty. And she gave this press conference and it was one of the first things she said. She said, this case has implications for professional sport throughout Australia, if not the world. She knows exactly what this is about. She knows exactly what's at stake. She has said what's at stake. And so we too should not be naive about what is in fact at stake. 
Now, the federal government is currently drafting a Religious Discrimination Act, and the detail of that law and the nitty-gritty of how it's put together is going to be crucial to resolving this kind of issue and much more. And so we really need to get behind that. And to add your voice to the petition to support good religious freedom laws from this federal parliament, you can go to acl.org.au. There'll be a link at the top of the page for the Religious Freedom Campaign. Please sign up. It's really important. Now I'm going to turn to um, another point, which kind of flows out of the Falau issue, kind of not. It's a bit of a theological question. And it is this, what is love? Um, it's not only one of the most unanswered questions among Christians these days, but I fear that it's possibly one of the most unasked questions amongst Christians these days, because people parrot words like love and being loving all the time, but it seems without ever stopping to wonder what in fact those words might mean. I heard, for example, someone say concerning Israel Folau's Instagram post, they said the other day that, well, you know, he could have been more loving in the way that he did that. And I wondered whether that person had actually stopped to think about what it was precisely that they were trying to say and whether more loving was the best way to say it. Because if we thought about what love might mean or what they might have meant by using that word, um, the slogan we so often hear in the political discourse is love is love. But again, what is love? The question isn't answered in that slogan. I'll never forget listening to uh, the sermon by Bishop Michael Curry at the royal wedding of Harry and Meghan about the power of love. And he used that phrase over and over again. And every time he said it, it was like, you know, it was like catnip to the audience. They were smiling and they loved it. And everybody loved it. But I was sitting there thinking, yeah, but what is love? He never defined it. He was careful not to define it. Um, it's become, I fear, a word that is shallow and sentimental. It conveys something good, something soft, something fuzzy. It, it, it provokes a sort of sentimentality. And as soon as it's used, it, 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 it's connected immediately with feelings above all. Good feelings, positive vibes. It speaks of warmth. So to be loving really has become another way of saying to be positive. To love someone is to ensure that by the time you've completed your interaction with that person, their supply of positive vibes isn't substantially diminished. You've got them through with all the good feels still intact. And so to be loving is to be positive. And the only reason that we've arrived at that point is because we have rested our found, the foundation upon which we define love. We've rested it falsely. It's on a false foundation. We define love according to whom? According to us? According to the subjective feelings of other people? Is that how we define love? Or do we define love according to God? Because the truth is that God defines love. It's his attribute. It is him. God is love. The definition of love isn't about me. It's about God. And it's not designed around what I feel are my interests or what my neighbor feels are his or her interests, but around what God knows and declares to be my interests, which are in fact my true best interests. God is love. Love is from God. And rather than ground our definition of love in God himself, my fear is that we have built it on the false foundation of self. We've grounded our definition of love in other people's feelings. 
But you know, we're told in Scripture time and time again that love is God's attribute and it is true love. Actual love is of God. Here in his love, says the Scripture, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And then goes on to give the ultimate example of it. He sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Do you know, the New Testament, when it talks about love, it uses a word which wasn't used in this way at the time, but almost almost to coin a usage of the Greek word agape. And it's stuck. And the New Testament talks about this love, which is God's love, which is agape. And you know, to properly understand what agape is, which is the love that is to characterize our love of neighbor and our love of God and our love to others in this world, uh, when we are doing so in service for God, agape is... First of all, above all, it is action. Notice you can't speak of the love of God without speaking of the action that that love fueled. To love is to act. It is never only to feel. It is never enough to be passive. But love is the attribute by which God is eternally moved to communicate his goodness to us in what he does. But what kind of action? Well, there's a couple of characteristics of that action. The first characteristic is that it is action for others. But how do we know what is best for others? Comes back to what I was just saying. It is their highest and their best interests before God. Their highest and best interests as revealed by God. Because, you know, man by wisdom cannot know God. And likewise, in our wisdom, we become fools in Romans 1, and we do things that are not in our best interest, that are governed by the lusts, the passions, the feelings of our hearts. It is God who reveals. And therefore, when we model how we act to others in their highest and greatest and best interests, we model it upon what God has shown us to be those highest and greatest and best interests. But there's another element to this action, and this is crucial. It is action regardless of the great cost of that action. And in a sense, this is where we look at love and we are warmed and overawed in our feelings by what we see. Because to act towards someone in their highest and best interest is almost always to act towards someone at cost to the self. But to overlook and ignore that cost to the self. Do you know this is seen most of all in Jesus Christ? Do you know, above all, when Christ came, He came and he embodied and he demonstrated and he showed love in all that he did. His was a great mission of love. He was perfect in his moral attributes of God. He was love. And he came because God so loved the world that he gave his son. And he embodied that. And he did that at ultimate cost. Why? Well, because, you know, when he came, and he was love incarnate, people hated him without a cause. That's what it says, he says of himself. They actually screamed out and cried out as an angry mob after he'd been beaten and all sorts of things and said, crucify him, crucify him, we will not have this man to reign over us. Read Isaiah 53, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief was the the character trait of his life. He was someone on whom men looked and hid their faces from him as one who was smitten of God and afflicted, despised, rejected by men. This is throughout the Bible. He was above all things ultimately rejected. 
because when the light and love of heaven shines into the darkness and the hatred of this world, many will reject it. And this world, on the whole, very often does not tolerate it and will not be drawn to it. And so when Christ came to act at ultimate cost for ultimate best interests for the human race, he suffered. And so love is God's goodness in action to serve our highest and best interests at great cost to himself. And Jesus is the archetype of that. The great cost of his love for this world in what he did. Do you know, it mustn't stop us. We mustn't ever think that because that response might come, that what we've done is unloving. Do you know what characterizes the ministry of Jesus? It's quite extraordinary. You read the stories uh, of Jesus speaking to people in John's Gospel, for example, and he loved them and he sought their best interests. And he'd already cost him so much merely by coming, but it would cost him more. And he'd go to the woman at the well. And what would he do? What was her highest and best interest? She needed to be free from the slavery to her sin. And he pointed out straight away, go and call your husband. Ouch. Finger on the problem. You know, with Nicodemus, he comes to him, he's a man with all his righteousness. He's a man who's built his life on following the law, on being a good Jew, on righteousnesses and on pure living and clean, blah, 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 blah. Pharisee of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews. And he says to him, you must be born again. You must go, as, as it were, you must start all over again. For what does the scripture teach? Righteousness is done in the flesh or as filthy rags before God for our salvation. The hardest thing for that man to hear, but the thing that he needed to hear, and a man who was ultimately converted, as was the woman at the well. Rich young ruler, you know, the keenest convert one had ever seen. I'll follow you wherever you go. What does he say to him? This man's got something he needs to be freed from. He points his finger at it and he says, listen. He says, sell everything you have. Identifying the issue. Now, yes, there were times when Jesus dealt with a person with great gentleness. I think the woman caught in adultery is an example of that. He said, go and sin no more. And that was the size of it, having, having essentially saved a skin. Uh, but you know, very often, warnings, very often hard truths, very often truths that were calculated in the pattern of his own cross, the cross that in which he would die for the things that he had to free these people from, because he knew why he came, he knew what love was doing in his life for that mission and that purpose from God himself, and he knew what people needed to do in order to enjoy the benefit and the fruit of all that he would achieve on the cross. And so let us be clear, what is love? It's got nothing to do with my feelings. It's got nothing to do with the feelings of someone else. There's a sense in which there is a sentimental kind of love, but this is not agape, this is not the love of God. But when we see it in Christ, of course, it warms our hearts and warms our feelings because it is, it is his eternal action for us at great cost to himself. And let us be models of that in this world and not be dismayed or discouraged because do you know scripture promises time and again that amidst the rejection the work of God will be done, there will be those who accept. And you think particularly of Matthew 5, which I'm very fond of mentioning. In the one breath, Jesus is saying, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake, pointing out that's going to happen, pointing out that's going to be the pattern of many lives. 
the right things will cause you to suffer and be persecuted. But, you know, it's like two breaths later and he's saying people will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The dual reality. And one is often noisy and loud and the other one is often quiet and continuing. And we can be sure by faith that God's work continues even when the going gets tough. But it should never stop us from putting into practice that wonderful yet sometimes hard truth of loving neighbour and loving God. And we certainly should never turn around and point at others and disown them because they have tried to do it and because they have struggled and suffered as a result. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's hinge all that we understand of this great and vast subject around the great love of God. I'm Martin Niles, and that was The Truth of It.